We're so glad that you've tuned into our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Kathy Kuhn, and I'm the Counseling Director here at Rolling Hills. We're continuing our series, A Beautiful Life, a study in 1 John in today's podcast, and we can't wait to dive into the rest of 1 John 2 with you. Now here's Pastor Nick. Hey, good morning, everybody. So as Joel mentioned a few minutes ago, I feel like I'm speaking in a palladium of like 53,000 people. Does my voice sound booming? Okay, so like as Joel mentioned earlier this morning, we're in the middle of a series called A Beautiful Life. Um, and, and we're studying very clearly the words of John the Apostle. So if you're reading the New Testament and you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John, brother of James, sons of Zebedee, fishermen that Jesus called to abandon their nets and come and follow him, walked with him. He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, indicating this kind of best friend relationship that the two of them shared. He was one of not only the 12, but the inner three. And he went on to be pretty instrumental in the founding of the church in Jerusalem and then spreading that message of the gospel post-resurrection and ascension all around the visible world during that day. And not only that, but he maintained apostolic authority throughout the remainder of his life. And history tells us that he lived longer than the other apostles. Whereas they died in their 60s and 70s, all of them martyred for their faith, John lived to be 85, 90 years old and was ultimately exiled and lived a long life on the Isle of Patmos. We get these three letters that he wrote, these epistles of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. They're not called 1st, 2nd, 3rd because of any sort of level of importance. One is not better than the other. They're just called 1st, 2nd, 3rd because that's the, the order that they go in and we need to see that there are three. And then finally, the book of Revelation. We look at John recognizing that he is probably, during his day, the last living eyewitness of the, the physical walk around, eat food, take a rest, Jesus, pre-crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, a guy who walked with Christ, the last living eyewitness that we have. And that's why it's so important later in his life that he be able to one last time pass on words of faith to a people who are gonna still be called and tasked with following Jesus, even when there are no more eyewitnesses of Jesus in the world. It's important, the message that he has to pass along. I remember um, my oldest child, Lily Kate, um, when she was very, very little, we had the Jesus Storybook Bible. Maybe you guys have seen this. It's literally a picture Bible that tells Genesis through Revelation in, in kid language, and it highlights the big, important stories and moments. But the, the coolest thing about the Jesus Storybook Bible is that from start to finish, in the garden all the way to the Battle of Armageddon and the heaven in the end, it highlights the ways that we can see Christ, the Christology that's present, not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Gospels, but the gospel message that's alive all throughout Scripture from start to finish. And I do remember reading a Bible story. I don't even remember what story it was from the Old Testament. Really early on, Lily Kate's like four years old and she just says, <gasps> and I thought, oh, did she see a bug? We're just reading the Bible. Like what's going on here? Because she would have been really excited about that. Like, <gasps> and she says, daddy, did you recognize that Jesus is in this story? And I was like, well, yeah, baby girl, I did. That's kind of the point of the whole Jesus storybook Bible. But at four years old, she's literally listening to the words read aloud on the page. And she's saying, <gasps> daddy, did you recognize that Jesus is in this story? Yes, baby girl. 
and it's my hope, and, and it's my prayer. Um, and, and it's the way that we're gonna do our dead level best to set up the world around you and the church that you're a part of that you always get to see and recognize that Jesus is all over this story. That's what John wants people to see. Guys, Jesus is all over this story. Start to finish, all the way through, it's ultimately all about Jesus. So in chapter two, uh, Jeff began that chapter last week, highlighted a big chunk in the middle. We're gonna start right at the beginning and then finish out chapter two this week. It says in two one, my dear children, John's not writing to just his biological children. We don't know a whole lot about them, but what he's doing is writing to his spiritual children. My dear children, everybody that's coming up after me, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And I'm thinking, well, that's real good. If you're about to tell me the secret of not sinning, then my ears are going to tune right in because I want to know what you're talking about. That word sin in the Greek language is hamartano, and it literally means to miss the mark, which we do, by the way. You could just repeat these like, I know I'm a terrible, wretched sinner. You are too. Like we just make mistakes. And so you're immediately kind of wondering, okay, is this talking about like the individual sins that we commit? Is, is John talking about like, hey, I'm writing this to you so that you will not tell a lie. I'm writing this to you so that you will not have a lustful thought. I am writing this to you so that you will not think too highly of yourselves. Is he, is he writing this to them to give them the secret so that they won't commit those individual sins that regardless of our status in the kingdom of God and our place with Jesus Christ, you and I still commit to this day? Or is he writing about their whole permanent life sin nature and the story of what will happen to them if they're not redeemed by Jesus? Probably both. When we talk about sin, we're doing the same thing. We're not just talking about the individual acts that we commit, although we are, and we highlight those. But most of the time we focus too often and too steadily on those. Like Jesus Christ came to forgive us of our sins. No, Jesus Christ came to remove our sin nature. We're not just talking about the individual stuff that we do or think or feel or say or, or, or whatever. We're, we're talking about the nature, the bottom line description of who we are. John's talking about both. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, maybe so that you won't have to grapple with the permanent consequences of your sin nature. And so he does not miss a beat with talking about what the true nature of the gospel is. He says, but, in verse one, if anybody does sin, if anybody does remain in that sin nature, we have an advocate. That's the word paraclete. In the, if you type that out on your piece of paper, like on your computer, it's going to autocorrect to parakeet. Don't do that. You're going to have to go back and go back and check it again. It's, it's paraclete. And it literally means one who pleads another person's case before a judge. It's basically a, a counsel for the defense. It's, a, it's an advocate. So if, we, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate, a, a paraclete with the Father. It's Jesus Christ. Bible says the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him, which means his life has been applied to ours. That forgiveness is, is attainable by us. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. We get this picture of, of substitutionary atonement. The fact that our sins are forgiven, that, that we can literally be made clean and whole and acceptable to God only by Jesus Christ. John gives them the gospel. And right here, what, what we know is scripture 
right from the beginning and all the way through, has a really clear-cut purpose. What's uncertain isn't really anything about Scripture. What's uncertain is whether or not you and I will follow it. The, the Gospel Coalition editor, um, his name is Matt Smithurst, and he recently wrote about the Old Testament these words. The Old Testament is filled with prophets that predict Jesus, patterns that preview Jesus, and promises that anticipate Jesus. See, Daddy, did you recognize that Jesus is in this story too? And right from the beginning, Scripture wants us to get it. It wants us to understand that clear-cut purpose from God. Scripture wants us to understand who Jesus is. Scripture wants us to recognize that Christ is on the page. Moses said, and it's written down for us in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Listen, listen, this whole message that I'm giving you today, everything that God wants to communicate to you, everything that I'm speaking to you, it's not that difficult. Nobody has to say, he goes on to talk about in verse 12, nobody has to say, hey, who's gonna go up into heaven and bring this down for us? Nobody has to say, verse 13, hey, who's gonna cross the seas and go into the depths to bring it back for us? And then Moses says, written down in Deuteronomy 30, 14, no, the word is very near you, the word, Jesus. It's very near you. It's in your mouth, it's in your heart, so that you may obey it. The whole purpose, start to finish, is that we would know and follow Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 10, these things happened to them. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament stories. He's talking about the Old Testament heroes, and he's talking about the Old Testament villains. He's talking about the Old Testament victims. He's talking about the Old Testament giants. He's speaking about the stories and the people, their ancestors. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Scripture has a clear purpose, all of it examples for us, a pattern for us, an understanding for us that would point us to Christ. What's uncertain is whether or not we will follow it and, it's in your notes, how much time we have to use it. How much time we have to use this. If you skip down to chapter, I mean, chapter 2, verse 18 of 1 John, that's where we start to zero in on our text for the morning. He says, dear children, hey, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. That's verse one. And then he says in verse 18, dear children, this is the last hour. And what John understands is that, is this his last hour? Probably he's getting close. Is this, is this their last hour as believers in Jesus Christ? What he's saying is that these are end times. These are end days. And we can't read this passage of scripture and think, well, boy, did he ever get it wrong because 2,000 years later, I'm whipping a phone out of my pocket and calling somebody across the globe. He never would have thought that this was coming. Clearly, John was wrong about the last days, or was he? You know, with the Lord, a, a, a minute's like a thousand years, right? Maybe he's prompting people with the idea of last days to talk about this is a really important time. He was in a really important time then, and we're in a really important time now. I wonder how much of our lives would be different if we thought that we were nearing the end. Look at the radically obedient and abandoned way that these apostles lived their lives willing to die in order that the gospel may be spread. It's because they said they were living in last days. 
They knew that the end was near. And, and truth be told, the apostolic writers, they likely very well thought that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. That's why there was not this crazy sense of urgency to write everything down really quickly because they thought that they would have lived and been able to articulate verbally the story of what Christ had done until it came time to write that down and pass it around the church because those apostles started getting to the ends. They thought Jesus says, hey, I'm coming back for you. Hey, two weeks later, I mean, you know, that would be a great time, Jesus. Won't you just come back then? Like, what's going to happen? Did they realize that thousands of years in the future we would still be hanging on to these promises? Maybe. But what they never planned on is that 2,000 years in the future, we would forget this command. We're living in the last days. Because when we forget that we're living in the last days, there lessens the sense of urgency that we feel to communicate this gospel. Dear children, this is the last hour. You know that Europe song? Um, the final countdown. It has like a minute and 20 second intro. This is the final countdown. Y'all think it's in Rocky Four, but it's not. It just sounds like that one song where he's working out towards the end. Like it's, it's not, it's not like Google it. You'll find it. It's not on the soundtrack. And that song was written, uh, I guess the final countdown because we're all going to outer space, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, like blast off. We're going somewhere. Maybe this is the final countdown. And maybe your life and my life will be the lives that get to see the return of Christ. But regardless of whether or not Jesus comes tomorrow or Jesus comes 2,000 years from now, we ought to be living in the last days with a sense of urgency that John felt. Job 14.5 says this, that a person's days are determined. You, you God, You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits that he cannot exceed. That's why according to the sovereignty of God, we know that nobody lives one minute past the time that they're supposed to. It's why according to the sovereignty of God, nobody dies any earlier than they're supposed to. Our days, individually and collectively, as a people, are predetermined. God has set a limit of months that you and I cannot exceed, and we don't know when that day is coming. Some of us will get the benefit of a medical marvel that will tell us, hey, you've got roughly six weeks to live. And what we'll do during that six weeks is we'll spend all of our time praying that God would somehow miraculously extend that six weeks instead of going out and obediently leveraging that six weeks for the glory of God so that more people within that six weeks can come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If John had been told, hey dude, this is it for you. Three weeks from now, you are a goner. I'm convinced that he wouldn't have spent those last three weeks praying for a reprieve. He would have spent those last three weeks working for a solution for the gospel to be spread in more parts of the world so that more people could know. We get so confused between what's urgent in life and what's really important in life. And when you take what's important and when you start to understand that it really is urgent— You'll do it even more. Reggie Joyner is one of my ministry here, and he says this in a book called Playing for Keeps. When you see how much time you have left, you'll do more with the time that you have now. When you see how much time you have left, and he says that in terms of ministry, like your kid's getting old and moving out of the house, right? He says, when you realize that you've got a a 14-year-old, you realize that 
in four years, she's 18. When you, when you have a four-year-old, you think, oh, I've got 14 years before I have to really think about all this stuff. Tell that to the high school senior parents that we're going to honor next week, not just the kids who've graduated, but really their parents who have fueled them on this journey. We'll celebrate that. Ask any of them. They will surely tell us it flew by. And if they could go back and tell their 18 years ago selves one thing, it would have been spend every minute and moment making the most of the time that you have because the time will move fast. And with the time that we have, we want to make sure that we communicate Jesus. When you know how much time you have left, John writes, hey, we're in the last hour. You don't have much time. We don't know how much time we have. You'll tend to make the most of the time that you have now. All throughout this passage of Scripture, all throughout all of Scripture, there are incredible challenges and also opponents to a Christ-led life. Jeff talked a lot. You can go back and listen to the message that we heard at all of our Rolling Hills campuses last week from Jeff Simmons at our Franklin campus. Um, And he talked about specific challenges to the Christ-led life all out of chapter 2. But now we talk about the opponents, both of which are evil. Whether it's a challenge, worldwide hunger, poverty, racism, competing ideas, our own sinful desires, or human lack of understanding, man, it's the presence of evil in the world. Or perhaps it's the presence of opponents, false teachers, false religions, false ideologies, false gods. He continues in verse 18 of chapter 2, dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming— Uh Uh-oh, we're about to talk about end times up in here. Even now, many antichrists, plural, have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. He uses antichrist twice in this passage. One is the proper name for that one antichrist that will come. Interestingly enough, the word antichrist is only mentioned by John in these epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. It's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, although we're given this great amount of detail about what that final, the one big Antichrist will do in Revelation chapter 13. There he's not called the Antichrist, he's just called beast. Okay, so we are looking at this, and it's not the Antichrist that he's talking about. What we're really concerned right now is what he says in the rest of verse 18, and now many Antichrists, plural, have come. This is how we know it's the, you know, people are really concerned with who the Antichrist might be. And whether or not the Antichrist is living and alive today, like maybe he's a toddler somewhere in preschool across the planet. We don't know. Or maybe he's already one of the worldwide leaders. People have often speculated on one side or the other who the Saddam Hussein, is that the Antichrist? Maybe. Barack Obama, Donald Trump. People have said that about both. I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Neither neither one is the Antichrist. Now, that's just me today. You can write it down. But a lot of people have speculated who the Antichrist is. We might ought to be more concerned with who the Antichrists are. Maybe not the one, but maybe all the little ones who are walking around. There's characteristics that come out of this passage. Scripture, if you continue reading through 1 John chapter 2, where do they come from? Verse 19 tells us, says they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. They departed from the way. They departed from the truth, but where'd they come from? They came from within the church. 
Where did the Antichrists come from? They came from within the church. That ought to make us have pause. We're all looking for the Antichrist to come out of Islam. We're all looking for the Antichrist to come out of the White House. Antichrists are coming out of the church. Where do they come from? They come from among us. What do they do? Verse 22 says, they are liars. Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the only way, such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. What do the Antichrists, plural, do? They go out and plant seeds of deception so that you and I will stop seeing Jesus on the pages so that we'll stop recognizing that Jesus is not only in the story, but Jesus is the point of the story. What do they do? They lie. They believe lies. And then why it matters, they spread those lies. Verse 26 says, I am writing these things to you, not so that you won't sin, so that you won't be pulled away. I am writing these things to you, verse 26, about those who are trying to lead you astray. Where do the Antichrists come from? Among us. What do they do? They deny Jesus. Why does it matter? Because they try to make us do it too. That's where the danger lies. Jesus talked about that. Matthew chapter 24, verse 5 and 24, he says, many, not just one, many will come in my name from you, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. And maybe the Antichrists aren't coming up from among us going, I am the Messiah, but maybe they're coming up from among us. Hey, I've found a better way. I've found a clearer understanding. I've found a nugget of truth that you haven't found yet. So come and listen to the thing that I now understand better than anybody else understands it. I've found the way they will deceive many. It says in verse 24, for false messiahs, plural, and false prophets, plural, will appear and perform great signs and wonders. They'll be Bible-believing Christians who seem to be on the path of the narrow, but then they will deceive. If possibly, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, if possible, even the elect, don't get caught up on that word. What it really means is Christians. And what that really says is none of us are immune. None of us are immune to believing the lies that some enemy would tell us that would distract us from seeing the real Jesus. And in some ways, and on some days, with some of our words and some of our actions, we bear at least one of these characteristics. When we skip ahead towards the end of this month into, well, the end of next month in 1 John chapter 4, we'll encounter verse 3. It says, every spirit, every spirit, that does not acknowledge, say it, believe it, follow it, that does not acknowledge that Jesus is from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit, the attitude, the feeling, the lifestyle, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Any spirit in us that doesn't want to believe the Jesus on these pages, it's the spirit of the Antichrist. It's a spirit of not fully trusting what this word says, all of it, about the Christ that we've been given. But there is good news, even from this passage. 
The good news is that we've been given a protection from God and a prompting from God. If you read in verse 20, it says this, but you, John's talking to the believers, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. You know, knowing the truth isn't something that you figure out. It's something that the Holy Spirit reveals to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit, his spirit, not the spirit of Antichrist, but his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Our anointing comes from God. Your ability to understand this truth comes from God. Your ability to recognize, hey, daddy, I see Jesus on this page. That comes from God. It comes from God. And it's a protection that you've been given. The power of the Holy Spirit in you is a protection, a sixth sense that you've been given to know, okay, wait a minute. This sounds like Jesus. This doesn't sound like Jesus. I'm going to go to the word that I trust to find out what the real Jesus is. And I'm going to believe it. Verse 24 says, as for you, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. Because it's not just a protection that we've been given, it's a prompting that we've been given to continue in that word. If it does, you will remain in the Son and the Father. And verse 28 says this, and now dear children, we've said dear children a lot in this passage of scripture, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. We can still belong to him when he comes if we don't follow the lies of the enemies that are all around us. I just picked this up yesterday. It's a book that Susan's been reading. I've known about this girl for a while. Her name is Alyssa or Elisa Childers. She was in a popular Christian band probably about 15 or 20 years ago that traveled around and did all the like Christian youth ministry circuits. And she's writing um, a lot in apologetics, the idea of defending faith and defending truth. And this is basically her story of a lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity. And that's a warning for us. Just listen to what she talks about. She says, we've all heard stories of Christian kids who walk away from their faith after being challenged by skeptical professors in a college classroom. My faith, she writes, was confronted in a similar way, but not at a university. It was challenged in the pews of the church. It was rocked by a pastor who had won my trust, respect, and loyalty. It wasn't some random weirdo that I met during a street outreach on Hollywood Boulevard and who sprouted vitriol against God as I handed him a gospel tract. This was an educated, intellectual, calm, and eloquent church leader, someone who expressed love for Jesus. He was a brilliant communicator, and he had a bone to pick with Christianity. She continues in this Bible study that she was invited to be a part of meeting after meeting. Every precious belief that I held about God, Jesus, and the Bible was placed on an intellectual chopping block and hacked to pieces. Identifying himself as a hopeful agnostic, the pastor began examining the tenets of the faith. Virgin birth? Doesn't matter. Resurrection? Probably happened, but you don't have to believe in it. The atonement? That would be a nope. And the Bible, God forbid you believe that Scripture is inerrant. He pointed out that even high school students had moved beyond their primitive notion that the Bible is true. During our discussions, many in the class dismissed fundamental beliefs as fearful, dim-witted behaviors that simply followed what they were told to believe. 
She says, sure, I'd seen these claims before, maybe on the cover of Newsweek magazine or even a television special trying to debunk Jesus on the Discovery Channel, but that was never a surprise. She expected non-Christians to disbelieve. She could close the magazine, turn off the TV, and go about her day. Yet in that small group discussion within the church, she said there was no escaping. It seemed like I was the only one in the room who was troubled by what I was asked to respond to, but I didn't have the answers. I had never even thought of some of the questions. I would later learn that this dismantling of doctrinal tenets where all beliefs someone was raised with and had never questioned are systematically pulled apart is something that progressive Christians call deconstruction. There's, there's nothing progressive or Christian about progressive Christianity and, and nothing to celebrate about being post-Christian. You know, there's ultimately false prophets, false teachers, false ideas coming up within local churches. They're, they're the tools that the enemy uses to trip us up and make us abandon the truth of our faith, and they are the same tools that he's been using since the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3 says that the serpent in the garden was more cunning than any of the other animals in the garden, and he's been using the same tactics. In the very first garden, he didn't look at Adam and Eve and say, God isn't real. He said, what did God say? He didn't try to prove to them that God wasn't there. He tried to make them question God's authority. It wasn't that God didn't speak words. The enemy just wanted to twist those words. Also that Adam and Eve could be enlightened so that their eyes could be opened so that they could become like God. That sounds progressive. I've arrived. I'm no longer burdened by that old school truth that I lived underneath. Now I'm free. The ideas of progressive Christianity are prevalent in our world. In fact, you can just Google websites about it, and churches are proud to say we are a, a progressive Christian community. But are they teaching us true doctrines of faith and helping us grapple with the, the mystery of Jesus that God wants us to see come alive on every page. John, John wrote in 2 John 1, 9, anybody who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. To get ahead of this, is to turn away from this. Verse 28 says, Dear children, continue in him. Continue in him. In some of your Bible translations, continue is translated as abide. It's the word menno, and it literally means to remain, to stay here, and to wait. I'm less concerned with my kids growing up and denying Jesus than I am with them growing up and adopting a different version of Jesus. I I'm less concerned with them going out into the world and facing the aggressive attacks of atheists in the world or other religions in the world 
than I am of them growing up in the life of a church that causes them to progressively question the truth that comes from this word and that exposes nothing but Jesus cover to cover. We're going to be a creedal family. We're going to be a a, a definition of the, the one Christ, one way, one gospel family that God sent his son to appease his wrath so that I could be God's child and live fully restored and abide Menow, continue in him until his return, no matter how long it takes. And we have to be a church that invites others to take on that same knowledge of Jesus and to remain faithful to that same truth about Jesus. So that one day, verse 28, they can stand confident before Jesus and know that they really saw him on the page and they really knew who he was. And they really followed him with their whole life. That's the message we take out into the world. And it's the message that we maintain in these walls. No new truths out there. No deconstructed faith out there for us. If our faith was in Christ, it can't be destructed. Because our faith is in the only one who stands. Would you pray with me? Father, it's our desire to present to you a pure church. One that doesn't waver from understanding that you alone are Christ, that you alone are Savior, that you alone are life giver, and that you alone are sustainer. And when we come up against challenges in this church and in this world that cause us to threaten any of those parts of the faith that we have to believe in, we will go back to your word. We will see Christ on the page. We will determine that he is who we follow even when it's hard. And even when there are competing voices, even when there are false teachers, even when the enemy throws lies at us and throws doubts at us, we'll stand on the promise that you've put within us by the power of your spirit to remain true to the gospel that you've given us. That's our desire. And it's also the message that we extend to others. So Father, may we be a people who are so committed to your truth that we remain, that we abide, and that we wait for as long as it takes with the sense of urgency and with the sense of expectancy so that other people can know who you are too. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray today. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network where you can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date with what's happening and ways you can connect. We're thankful for you.